0: Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 2. This is the Word of the Lord. Listen carefully. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel.' For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to hear. Uh, this is a common story, which is a delight. <laughs> what a privilege that this is a common story. What a privilege that this is the, uh, part of the narrative of our lives and the narrative of our December But yet, Lord, we know that we are indeed foolish creatures. We are so quick to ignore the routine, to ignore the obvious. We miss things right in front of our face all the time. May that not be true today. Have your Spirit work in us, we plead, that we might hear and be different. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have heard the story in the last week or two. Cam Newton, quarterback of the Panthers, right down here. Uh, loves the, he started tradition, actually it was the offensive coordinator, uh, who encouraged him to do it, but he started doing it. It's kind of taken a life of its own, where after every touchdown, he takes the football and he runs and he hands it to one of the children in the stands, right? It's this kind of great tradition that has uh, endeared him to the, the hearts of the people of Charlotte. <clears throat> well, you may not know that, uh, if you throw a football into the stands in the middle of an NFL game, you're fined. And it's not just a little fine. It's actually $5,500 and change of a fine. And so somebody went back and figured out that, plus the number of footballs that Cam has uh, given away to the children in the stands and reported uh, a week and a half ago or so that Cam has been fined upwards of a quarter of a million dollar fine for giving these footballs to children. I don't remember who reported it first, but it was reported, and that is really a sensational story that a uh, a franchise quarterback would uh, be willing to sacrifice a quarter of a million dollars for the children of a town. I mean, it, it it has hit national news and spread through, I mean, wildfire, right? I follow European soccer. It's being reported on the British soccer channels. The problem is, is that it's not true. It's not even remotely close to true. Do you know how many dollars in fines Cam has paid for those footballs? The correct answer is Zero. He has not been fined a single dollar at all. But because it was reported as true and made its way into the cultural climate of the day, it has become accepted as true and spread throughout the globe as true. You see, the problem with the Christmas story is that in some places, it's much like the Cam Newton story. Where the truth of it has spread throughout our world, throughout our minds, throughout our hearts. But unfortunately, the false parts have as well. The parts that aren't actually actually in the Bible at all, but yet we assume they are, right? I mean, every year I have somebody ask me why their favorite Christmas carol's not in our hymn book. And usually it's because it's got something wrong with it. That's just not true. But we love it and we sing it all the time. It's not right, but it's endearing. It's become part of of the narrative, right? Three wise men, Mm -hmm. nativity scene, Mm -hmm. December, Mm -hmm. 25th. Mm -mm. We have all kinds of of problems with this that have become part of our cultural story. And it's why preaching these passages are so difficult is because we assume our story onto the text. The challenge that I'm going to open, the opening salvo here, is that for you this time to do your best to engage this, not this. Not your warm, fuzzy feelings about Christmas, which you love, and that's good, you should. Not, well, this is the way it's always been. Or this is the way the church everywhere celebrates it. And I want you to encounter the Lord in His Word, in His text, the one He actually tells the correct story in. And in order to do that, you have to look at the text, and I kind of back up one second in that regard, and to highlight one thing, remember that everybody who's writing a book in here is doing it for a purpose, Right? Every author in the scriptures, all of the godly men who wrote this, they had an agenda in mind. Right? None of them is writing this just purely historical book for no purpose. All of them are writing for a reason. And the gospels are particularly important to remember that with. They all have an agenda when they write it. Right? I mean, Luke even tells us it, right? That Theophilus, that you might believe in Jesus. John tells us what his, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Well, I mean, those are good agendas. They're righteous and they're godly and they're holy. It's not affecting the text in any way, but it's to accomplish a purpose. Matthew's purpose is a little bit different, and particularly in this section. Matthew, you remember, is writing to an audience that would have been very familiar with the Messiah, or what they thought he would be. They would have had a cultural narrative. They would have been the ones who would have believed the story about Cam Newton and would have had to come to grips with a different truth. They would have been the ones who loved the Christmas carols and only find out years and years and decades later that there's problems with them. They would have been the ones who grew up thinking Jesus was born on December 25th. We don't actually know that. It could have been April, it could have been October, it could have been December. And so what he's writing, Matthew is writing, is not to fulfill all of their wishes as to how to celebrate Christmas. He's not writing to them to how to to build the ritual and the, the rigor of this great holiday. He's writing to them to confront them with Jesus. And this chapter is explicitly designed to do one thing. To beg the reader to examine, how will I respond to King Jesus? You see, chapter one, he goes at length. I mean, he starts with a genealogy, magnificent, which is to highlight the fact that this little Jewish baby Jesus isn't just a Jewish baby; he's actually legally the King of the Jews. If you were to trace the genealogy correctly, the one who is the King of Israel is this child. He's royalty. Now, it shows the condition of Israel that he's so abjectly poor. But he is royalty. And chapter 2 is to continue that theme and to say, he's not just earthly royalty, we're going to see that, but he's also heavenly royalty. And how will you respond? How will you respond? That's the question. How will you respond? Respond to Jesus. And we're going to look at four kind of separate responses, just kind of highlighting the characters and the different uh, responses they take. And each of, us, each of them is going to show us uh, something kind of key. Now, remember, Matthew's only, he's trying to get you to interact with Jesus's royalty. How will you respond to him? So he's not telling all of the details that you would want to know, right? He's not going to tell you all the details about the star. We're going to find out some of them as we go. But he's not going to give all of them, but we're going to dive into the text. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so Jesus has been born. And again, hate to break your nativity scene up, but this is months after he's been born. Right. Magi, not there same time as shepherds. Totally different. Probably eight to 12 weeks separated. Uh, we're going to pick up. He actually skips that whole part. Luke tells that he skips ahead uh, to when we have this great interaction where the Magi uh, come from the east and they come to talk to Herod and they go to ask him one question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. Because so much of the Old Testament kind of highlights that part of the role of the Messiah would be that the nations would be glad, Psalm 67. That the nations would be gathered together, Psalm 2, that the nations would be changed. And here we see at the very arrival of Jesus, the ones who come seeking him are the nations. It's it's the unbelievers, really, technically, from the East who are coming and coming to ask, where is this one? And Matthew highlights, where is the king? Where is this king of the Jews? Where is the one who is supposed to reign? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship Him. Now again, I assume this all kind of incorrectly for years and years and years as a child, right? My assumption was that the birth narrative kind of took place this way. Mary got miraculously pregnant they lived a really rough life then they kind of had to make a flee right there at the end to go do this thing uh, to uh, for the, their taxes for the census and then while along the way whoops, oh we're going to have a baby and then the nativity scene was like miraculously injected into creation with this glowing star that descends upon it and everything comes and they're all peaceful and the baby's never crying right? because one of the hymns says it's never crying and what it means is he wasn't crying at that exact moment and it's this perfectly placid picture of life and that's that's not it Right, The star rises very much like a planet in the sky. Some think it was Jupiter. Some think it was a, a, a particular celestial body. But it rises in the sky and it sets again. It disappears. And these wise men have to journey from the far east all the way into uh, Jerusalem, which is why they're asking where the king is. They don't have a star to follow anymore. It's why when it shows up again, they're so exceedingly grateful. Yay, yeah, it's back! We know it's going to lead us there. But it begins with a question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is true of him physically. He is actually the king. It's true of him spiritually. He is the second person, the king of creation. How, second person of the Trinity, the king of creation. How will all people respond and here's where we're going to jump in the first thing we're going to look at is jerusalem all right verse 3 when herod the king heard this he was troubled and all jerusalem with him now you kind of have to back out a little bit again and know who herod is herod is not a good guy he's at the very end of his life he's going to die shortly after this he is a bad 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 man to the point where he's executed a number of his own children. Uh, after this story takes place, he will have thrown one of his sons into prison for supposedly staging a coup. Uh, his son accidentally hears that he thinks his father is dead. The son bribes the jailer to let him out. The son goes running through the palace thinking he's going to be proclaimed uh, king. His father hears and has him executed right there in the middle of it. All right? Don't even take him out. It is blood and guts. Not a good man. Right. Not not a kind guy. He spent his entire life working to earn the title king of the Jews to be ruler of this land. And he's flipped and flopped every time he's needed to. He has no political backbone. He takes whoever side is winning. And as soon as that side stops, he switches to another. He is not a good or kind or righteous man. And yet here with this one simple question, how do we respond to the king of the Jews? We see Jerusalem does something different. Instead of being concerned about the spiritual king of the Jews, they respond in terror to the physical king of the Jews, the the one that's actually ruling in charge right now. Not the baby. They respond to Herod, and Jerusalem gets all flustered and twitterpated and all uh, anxious and all kinds of bothersome that just shows up inside the town. I read a book not that long ago that was critiquing American culture, and uh, he he described American culture as it's um, kind of degenerating into this internet age, as it's degenerating to white noise. Right? You ever go to like a a large sporting event? You walk into the stadium and you can't hear what anybody's saying, but you hear tens of thousands of voices, kind of all at the same time, and it's just that constant. And you can tell, like when the play starts, the volume kind of goes up, and you still can't understand anything anybody's saying. That's kind of what happens to Jerusalem. This question is asked as to who is Jesus, and somebody turns up the white noise in the town. Right? The, the anxiety level increases. The, the volume of the town increases. The, the tension increases. Right? If you, a school teacher, it's what happens in the classroom like the five days before you go on winter break. <laughs> right? You get that. Uh, parents, it's what you have in your children after they've consumed copious amounts of Halloween candy. Right? It, the, the tension just rises but no response, no action, no product other than concern. You see, here we're going to see highlighted these first of these responses as to how people respond to Jesus, and it's with excitement. All smoke, but no fire. To respond with great energy, with great zeal, with great vigor, but with no true content. In fact, actually, this is one of those responses, I would say, that's most easy to see in our great town around this time of year. We have a holiday that originally was started, it was designed for us to think about the birth of Jesus. That is a tremendous privilege and not something that should be taken for granted. Christmas is absolutely something we should use for our children to instruct them in the ways of God. Absolutely. It's a great privilege. Yet in our nation, you watch this time of year, it is so often a time where Christianity kind of gets the volume turned up, but nothing ever really changes. Right? You see people get more excited, they get more energetic, and they never change. Right? And so you you actually watch any of the debates over the last week and you can watch where the, the candidates get really passionate and they'll get really loud and they'll start yelling and turn their volume up, but the content of what they said is no different than what they said the last time they were asked that question. All it is is to think that I can accomplish something by being louder, by being more energetic, by being more concerned. Right we think about this as Jesus describes with you have different types of uh soil that produce plants right he uses a parable and you have one type that springs up with a plant right away but the second that the difficulty hits it withers and dies you have a plant that springs up right on christmas time a nation that oftentimes will talk about Jesus and you can see him spray painted on a McDonald's window in Colorado and And come January, that conversation disappears because it's not genuine faith. Oftentimes, it's not genuine growth. It's just simply a mob mentality. It's an excitement, an energy, a a, a draw to be in and belong with the crowd, with the people. I watch this happen in youth ministry all of the time with the, the positive results of peer pressure. We're having a large youth group with great zeal and a number of very godly children in it. You would see other students come in and try to mimic and imitate and copy and see zeal and passion and all that smoke increase but never actually change. Never actually grow. And that's what happens in Jerusalem. The town gets fully excited. They get all this kinds of interaction. They get all of this energy. And you've got to think all of the town gossips going back and forth. And nothing ever changes. They don't go. They don't leave. They just stay. They get excited about nothing. It doesn't impact them. That's a bad response. It's not a good one at all. But yet it, there's actually one that I find to be a bit more even disturbing than that which is that of the Jews, right? Herod gets upset. Jerusalem gets upset accordingly. All the anxiety happens, all of the noise and angst and frustration, but nothing ultimately changes. So Herod's like, well, we got to deal with this. And he gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he asks them, well, where is the Messiah to be born? And their response is kind of, a, well, duh. I mean, everybody knows this. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, everybody knows where the Christ is going. I mean, literally every Jew knows where's the Messiah going to come. Well, he's coming from Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. And then they don't do anything else. (laughs) How apathetic do you have to be to know where the Messiah is going to be, to have pagans show up to ask about him to have had some miraculous sort of light in the sky to show it, and you're like, oh, by the way, I think that's probably him, but I'm still just not going to respond. Eh. I mean, I got presents to wrap. I got stuff to do. I mean, I got baking I got to do. Come on now, it's baking. I got cookies to make. Again, do we not see that in our own culture today? Whereas Jerusalem embodies that excitement, all smoke and no fire, we see in the chief priest just shocking apathy. They don't care. They know the truth. They know exactly where he's supposed to come from. They have pieces in front of them that would lead them to believe this would be at least a time to look. I'll give you an illustration. If I told you I had taped a $100 bill under your chair right now, it would be a bit awkward for you to actually get down there and try to check and reach all the way under there. How many of you would truthfully at least be like trying to like slouch so you could get your hand (laughs) up? Even if you didn't care, you would still at least be curious enough to be like, well, I mean, I got like 1 in 85 odds. That's pretty good for 100 bucks, right? I don't care if I look silly. I'll do it anyway. I'll check the chair next to me. They're not checking that one. I'll check that one too. You would at least think that the priest, if you have the Messiah, the potential of the Messiah in front of you, you would at least think they would check it out. they tell Herod, oh, he's over there, was a good guess. Apathy. And again, I, I, I would contend maybe that is the classic American response to who Jesus is. Particularly in this great portion of this country here in the South where the story of the Lord Christ is so common. And the churches are... Everywhere. I mean, one there and one there and one there. They're everywhere. And yet people hear this again and it becomes old hat and we just don't care. We just don't care. Another character in the story, though, it's not just the Jews that are responding. Here we have Herod the king, and he is a problem of his own kind. He finds out, well, okay, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That would have been helpful to know yesterday, but okay, we can live with that. So he sends the wise men out and says, well, you go find him. I got a plan. You go find him, and when you come back to me, I'll kill you and him. It's a perfect plan. Right, again, not a good guy, not, not a good guy. His response is to feel threatened. His response is hatred, and so he devises a plan to kill the child. Well, the wise men are wise men. They listen to the prompting of the Lord. They go back a different way, and Herod kind of figures out, oh, they pulled a fast one there out of here. And so he's like, well, probably not going to make me very popular with the locals, but it will at least keep me in power. And so I'll kill all the children. And even though the kid's probably eh two year or two months old, we'll make it safe and go less than two years. We'll miss by a wide margin. Yeah, the class activist guy. And so he goes to that town and to that region and has his soldiers kill all of the baby boys. Now again, we're not talking thousands and thousands and thousands of children because we're not talking high population density. I mean this is probably fifty kids. Fifty kids that shouldn't have died. But yet his response to the inconvenience of Jesus is murdering children. And I would say in the American kind of culture, there are a few things less socially acceptable than murdering children. That, that is pretty much as bad as it gets, right? If you have somebody who is a regular child murderer, they're the ones who are like, you know, let them fry. That's what we, that we hate those people. Interestingly, unless they're in an abortion clinic, then we're okay with them. That's different, but we have a problem with that. And yet that's his solution to how to deal with Jesus is to go on the offensive and to say this one who will make a claim to my life and make a claim to my job and make a claim to my title to make a claim to be my king is unacceptable. I am the king of the Jews. He cannot be. I will exterminate him. We see this happening in our culture in legion. Where people are saying, I am the God of my own life. I cannot have another God of my life. I am already filling that position. Therefore, I will exterminate the existence of the real God. We watched this happen. The last five years, the culture changed. I mean, just, I mean, I've been at this church. This is my seventh Christmas. Think about how different it was when I got here and now. It's scary, the difference. As we watch this response manifest its ugly head over and over and over again in this great country. It shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it shouldn't shock us at all. I mean, again, you think about the the different types of soil. (laughs) One that produces a plant that's choked out by weeds. We have one that withers in the sun. You have one that doesn't even produce a plant because of the soil being too rocky. You only have one of the four types of soil that produces any fruit. Why am I surprised when I see the other responses? You see, this is part of the challenge that we have in our time and in this country, is to account for those responses and to respond correctly as a church. You see, these are the people that should have responded right. The Jews, they have this great heritage of the Old Testament. They know who the Messiah is. They know where He's coming. And yet they respond with excitement and no faith. The chief priests who know exactly who this Messiah is supposed to be, they have prophecy after prophecy. They know where He's going. And they're too apathetic to even care. Herod, filled with hatred, feeling threatened, seeks to exterminate. While in the midst of it, you see a group of pagans responding in humility and faith. You see a group of pagans actually producing. Righteous fruit. You see a group of pagans that illustrate that redeeming quality that that little baby would accomplish in three decades or so. You see a group of pagans. It could be three. If you don't know the reason why everybody thinks it's three wise men is because there's three presents. But we don't actually know there's three presents. We know there are three kinds of presents. There could have been more. We don't know. Matthew doesn't give us all of the details. He just highlights that it's a kingly present. And you see, they show up. They go searching diligently for him. I love this again. After listening to the king, verse 9, they go on their way. Behold the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them. So this star that somehow was in the sky to draw them into Israel, it shows back up again, whether that's way up high, like I think it probably was the first time, or, or down low, which more likely is the case, it leads them directly to the house. And they are flipping out in excitement, right? They have all of the joy that comes from hearing of the Lord. And they go into the house, again, this is probably, like I said, two months later, they've moved out of the uh, barn. You know, they've moved out of the manger and they've moved in most likely with relatives. They're unbelievably poor. I mean, they are unbelievably poor, these folks. And here come these great wise men bearing gifts that you only give to royalty into the middle of this just, you know, terrible, terrible project of a house. And they go in and present, not to the parents, but to the child. Before him, gold, which you would give a king. Frankincense, which is, uh, that was something that you would actually give to Yahweh himself. That was something you would give to the Lord. That would be used in uh, temple service. Uh, And myrrh, which would have been something that would have made you more pleasing to other humans. It was something that brides would wear. You put on the dead. It was to make you more delightful to your neighbor. You know, really amazing. A gift for a king, a gift for the Lord, and a gift for people. They don't fully understand what they're doing, I'm sure, but they give the perfect illustration of what this child is, God and man, all in the same. They have no clue, I'm sure. And then they worship. And you have to kind of pause again and just reflect for a moment what the scene really looked like. It would be the equivalent of us here having three of the greatest, you know, intellects with great power and great prestige going into the worst housing project in America and finding one of the poorest children in the worst housing project in America, a child that's probably already struggling with malnourishment because they don't have enough money, and then to go and fall and worship at the side of that cradle. Shocking. Shocking. For them to stake their reputation on that child and their honor, their service, their heart, their faith, their finances. These are not cheap gifts, right? These are gifts that are only mentioned, again, with kings or with temple service or with like brides or funerals, things that we spend exorbitant amounts of money on. And they worship. And then they obey the Lord and go back a different way. And you see highlighted in these pagans the contrast between a believing heart and an unbelieving heart. The unbelieving heart is presented here as a heart that may be filled with passion, may be filled with zeal, but produces no fruit. Or it could be a heart that just doesn't care. Or it could be a heart that's filled with hatred. But the believing heart is a heart that overflows with worship and with faith. The challenge for us is this. It's the same challenge that the original readers of this book would have been confronted with. It's the challenge that the readers of this book a thousand years ago would have been confronted with. It's the th- challenge we're confronted with today and if the Lord doesn't come back for another 10,000 years. I read some an article about that the other day. Heard a guy said, we still could be the early church for all we know. <laughs> we could have a 100,000 years of human history yet to come. But if the Lord so waits and the 100,000 years from now, the challenge will still be the same. How will we respond to the Christ child? How will we respond? Will you respond in faith and repentance? Will you respond in humility and worship? Will you respond in obedience? Or will you follow the path of the unbeliever? Trying to reshape this child into our own image? trying to pour out our hatreds or our ignorances upon Him. How will we respond? Father in heaven, we ask for Your mercy. We ask for the help of Your Spirit, that we too might show the heart of faith. And it's only possible in the Lord Jesus that we might respond in humility and love and faith and worship. And we ask that you would help us to do that even now. In Jesus' name, amen.